Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day, a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to 10 American Presidents. Before we jump into today's episode, big shout-out goes to our supporters, Kevin O'Brien, Robert Abernathy, Brent Hammond, Vasilev Sumanathan, Elizabeth O'Connell, Kia Patterson, Ali, Eric O'Meyer, Dan Kostelek, and Dan Collins. Thanks for keeping this podcast going. Your support is crucial. It helps us keep producing new content, exploring new topics and maintaining the quality that you expect from us. Every donation on Patreon makes a difference. If you enjoy our work and want to help us out, please consider becoming a patron. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash 10USP. That is 10USP to contribute to this podcast. Supporting us means that we have more episodes and I think you can all appreciate I've been putting my back into it recently and more presidential stories. So please lend a hand. Now we go on with the show. This is part five, the start of the second term of Ronald Reagan by Professor Ewan Morgan. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. Seven years ago, when in the course of human events, and so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country.
goal. Here comes Lewis on the outside. Carl Lewis wins the goal. In 1984, growth was back to a whopping 6%. Jobs were plentiful. The Americans were winning in the Los Angeles Olympic Games, a triumph for patriotism and nationalism. And the United States was back on top in the general Cold War. So Reagan is running for re-election in 1984 with everything seemingly in his favor. The Democrats are desperate to paint him as a, a warmonger, but they are not successful because Reagan continually tries to speak to the Soviet leadership, tries to get them to meet him, to talk about terms. But of course, Brezhnev has died. Then Andropov's died in uh, 1983. Then his successor, Chernyenko, follows suit in 1984. And as Reagan told Nancy, how can I get anywhere with the Soviets when their leaders keep dying on me? So there isn't a breakthrough in, in the Cold War before the election, but Americans feel more secure than they did in 1980. Peace appears to be stronger than it did in 1980. The year of maximum danger in 1983 is over. In 1980, Ronald Reagan had been the oldest man elected president of the United States. He was well over 69, and of course, shortly after his inauguration, he would become 70 in February 1981. In 1984, therefore, Reagan's age becomes the last lifeline for the Democrats. And it becomes a lifeline because of Reagan's appalling performance in the first presidential debate. Now, I don't think that to try and say that we were taxing the rich and not the other way around, uh, it just doesn't work out that way. The system is still where it was with regard to uh, the... Uh, He's hesitant. He doesn't appear to understand the questions. He meanders. And the media, who up to now, of course, haven't had much excitement in the campaign, begins to ask the question... Is Reagan losing it? Is is his mind capable of withstanding the challenges of the second term? Well, it was undoubtedly Reagan's worst public performance in his entire political career. And basically, as he himself saw it, he had overprepared. He had stuffed his memory with facts and figures. His aides had overtrained him. And he decided that now, for the second debate, he would take charge and he would handle it the way he wanted. Good evening. Good evening from the Municipal Auditorium in Kansas City. I am Dorothy Raddings, the president of the League of Women Voters, the sponsor of this final presidential debate of the 1984 campaign between Republican Ronald Reagan and Democrat Walter Mondale. And, of course, the inevitable question came up about, well, you know, John F. Kennedy famously went without sleep during the Cuban Missile Crisis. How do you think someone of your age would handle a comparable situation? And Reagan had expected this question and had already worked out on his own initiative an answer for it. Well, he said, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for 
political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. And that brought the house down, even Mondale laughed. From that point on, Reagan was safe. In fact, in the summing up, he went wandering all over the place, ran out of time, but by then nobody cared, and the second debate snuffed out the rather slim Democratic prospects of making age an issue in the campaign. And Reagan wins uh, re-election by a landslide. He wins uh, 58% of the popular vote, and he wins every state in the Union except for the home state of his Democratic opponent, former Vice President Walter Mondale, whose home state was Minnesota. The only other blue bit of the Electoral College map was the District of Columbia. 1984 is remarkable in terms of the voting stats. Reagan wins almost every demographic, the most resistant to him, African-Americans, but he wins 40% of the Hispanic-American vote. That's a huge uh, number for a uh, Republican. Remarkably, at a time when the Democrats are trying to exploit the gender gap in voting and have nominated Geraldine Ferraro as the first woman vice presidential candidate, a majority of women give their votes to Ronald Reagan. But the real startler is that 66% of Americans aged between 18 and 30 give their votes to the oldest ever American president. Now, why was this? It was in gratitude for Reagan putting the economy right. In 1980, their prospects had looked very grim. They thought that he'd handled the Cold War well, and youth gave Ronald Reagan a positive vote of confidence. Ronald Reagan's appearance at university campuses were greeted with uh, huge enthusiasm. As he himself said, it's remarkable that I couldn't show my face on campus in California during the Vietnam War. And here I am being fated by the youth of America and lots of people in the crowd would be shouting out, win one for the Gipper. Ronald Reagan's second term is nowhere near as successful as his early first term in domestic policy. The greatest challenge Reagan faced domestically was the AIDS crisis. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Bobby Campbell of San Francisco and Billy Walker of New York both suffer from a mysterious newly discovered disease which affects mostly homosexual men. At a time when the United States is suffering a major public health crisis, it's worth looking back on Reagan's management of the AIDS crisis. Now, it took a long time for science to understand what had brought about this terrible new disease that first became apparent in the late 70s and became increasingly so in the early 1980s. And by 1985, it was recognized that AIDS was transmitted in a variety of ways, unprotected homosexual sex, drug users sharing the same needle, and contaminated blood, often donated by drug users to get money, being given to haemophiliacs and other patients who needed blood transfusions. 
Ronald Reagan was pressed to do something about AIDS and he failed to understand the gravity of the crisis. He wasn't alone, by the way. It took a long time. Uh, What probably alerted Americans to the gravity of the crisis was the news that Hollywood movie star Rock Hudson was suffering from AIDS. And that helped to make the public aware. Hudson died in his sleep at nine this morning at his $3 million home in Beverly Hills. The actor had returned to his home in late August after having been told by doctors his health was too poor for any experimental therapy for AIDS. This was his last public appearance on July 15th of this year. (laughs) Some publicity shots with Doris Day. At this point, he had known for a year he had AIDS. A week later, he flew to Paris for treatment, and the world knew it. Nothing could be done. He came home to die. A frightened Hollywood began raising money to fight AIDS. Today, gays and others praised Hudson for having gone public with his disease. I think the man did more for us in the gay community in the last few months than maybe we've done for ourselves in a long, long time. Hudson would die of the disease in 1986. And a number of film stars asked Reagan, who was friendly with Hudson, knew he was gay, but still liked him as a person. And you've got to keep in mind that Reagan is a person of his time and the gayness is not something that they are accustomed to handling. But anyway, Reagan wouldn't do it. He decided that that would offend his Christian right constituency. And instead of taping a personal message, Reagan just sent a sort of token message of uh, regret. And this leads up to the big question, what could the government do? Well, it could fund research, but research, as we know in the current crisis, takes time. So there was a debate about, shall we test? And of course, AIDS victims did not want testing because that would be a stigma in itself. People knew they had AIDS or they didn't. And testing was a way of seen as a way of segregating AIDS victims or generally discriminating against them. So prevention, what could be done for prevention? Well, the Surgeon General Edwin Koop in 1987 presented a report to Reagan to say that we the best way of keeping the AIDS crisis at bay is prevention. We've got to have a public education campaign about safe sex and the use of condoms. We've got to make condoms easily available. We're going to have to do a massive advertising campaign about the need for prevention. At this time, the Thatcher administration in the United Kingdom, the conservative Margaret Thatcher administration, was grasping that nettle and was launching a campaign with its famous slogan, Don't Die of Ignorance. Ronald Reagan, however, is caught in a bureaucratic infight over the COOP report. The Surgeon General and the Secretary of Health and Human Resources wants the prevention campaign to go ahead. But the Christian Right Secretary of Education and a number of other moral majority-oriented aides in the White House staff say no. And Reagan is caught in the middle, and this time he does not show decisiveness and broadly goes along uh, with shelving the Coop report. It's arguably 
his greatest domestic failing as president. How many people died as a result of it? You can't put a figure on it. I think Reagan is unfairly blamed. Uh, one uh, AIDS campaigner on his death in 2004 remarked he killed more of us than Hitler did. Well, Ronald Reagan, I don't think, deserves that, but he does deserve condemnation that he did not mobilize the full resources of government in an anti-AIDS campaign. LL Cool J is hard as hell. Battle anybody, I don't care, you tell. I excel, they all fail. Gonna cancel double L, I think Ron Reagan also deserves condemnation for his handling of racial issues. Uh, too often, Ronald Reagan says, I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist. But he goes ahead and does racist things. Among them, he supports the church, schools and colleges in the South who want to maintain a lily-white school enrollment. And uh, he fights with his Department of Justice advisors and even other aides over where the the federal government should crack down on lily-white Christian schools and colleges. Eventually, the issue was resolved uh, in the second term by a series of Supreme Court decisions. In Reagan's second term, foreign policy continues to be the major priority. But it is foreign policy that nearly destroys his presidency before ultimately becoming its salvation. Now, it nearly destroys his presidency over the development of what would become known as the Iran-Contra scandal. Reagan and his associates were channeling illegally raised private donations to the Contras. In his second term, another issue leads him into the terrain of illegality. In the mid-1980s, the Hamas organization in Lebanon began to take American hostages. American citizens working in Lebanon ran the risk of being taken off the streets by uh, Hamas supporters and held in captivity. Ronald Reagan begins to think that his failure to get these hostages out, their families are demanding action, and Ronald Reagan becomes fearful that he will end up having his legacy sullied by the Lebanese hostages in the same way as Carter's legacy was sullied by the Iranian hostages. He is approached by the Prime Minister of Israel, who has been selling weapons to the Islamic Republic of Iran in order for it to conduct its war with Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Now, you might think Israelis selling arms to Iranians, what's going on here? The Israelis in the 1980s saw Saddam rather than Iran as their principal threat. But the Israelis were now being asked for weaponry, which the United States had given them. And the Israeli government asked for authorization from the Reagan government. Now, people in the Reagan administration, most notably National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane and National Security Council official Oliver North, saw a way of raising money 
by selling arms to Iran. And this was utterly illegal. This was secret and illegal. The United States had signed up to uh, international laws which banned sales to governments that supported terrorism. And Reagan himself had said he would never sell arms to terrorists. But in the needs of the moment, he agrees to do so. Now, what happens is this. How do you get the arms to the Iranians? Well, you have to hire planes to get them there. The Israelis said they'd help out, but it turned out they didn't have the uh, the right kind of planes available to fly out anti-tank weapons, which were the Iranians' main priority. So uh, Oliver North sets up a uh, network of suppliers and they begin to fly weapons direct into Iran. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On May 27, 1986, Chief Justice Berger advised me that he wanted to devote his full energies in the coming year to the important work of the Commission on the Bicentennial of the Constitution, and for that reason would be retiring as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court as of the end of the Court's current term. Today, I received with regret Chief Justice Berger's letter formally notifying me of his retirement. And immediately after my conversation with the Chief Justice, I had directed my Chief of Staff, together with the Attorney General and the Counsel to the President, to develop recommendations for a successor. And I'm pleased to announce my intention to nominate William H. Rehnquist, currently an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, as the new Chief Justice of the United States. 
Upon Justice Rehnquist's confirmation, I intend to nominate Antonin Scalia, currently a judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, as Justice Rehnquist's successor. In taking this action, I am mindful of the importance of these nominations. The Supreme Court of the United States is the final arbiter of our Constitution and the meaning of our laws. The Chief Justice and the eight Associate Justices of the Court must not only be just jurists of the highest competence, they must also be attentive to the rights specifically guaranteed in our Constitution and to the proper role of the courts in our democratic system. In choosing Justice Rehnquist and Judge Scalia, I have not only selected judges who are sensitive to these matters, but through their distinguished backgrounds and achievements, reflect my desire to appoint the most qualified individuals to serve in our courts. In 1986, Ronald Reagan promotes to the Chief Justiceship of the Supreme Court the most conservative member of the Burger Court, William Rehnquist. And in Rehnquist's place, in the same year, he gets another very conservative justice onto the court in the person of Antonin Scalia. In 1987, he goes for a third conservative, a very eminent jurist called Robert Bork. Now, Bork looked likely to sail through, but the Democrats decided that there was too much in his record, particularly in his criticism of uh, civil rights legislation and affirmative action, for him to go through unchallenged. And the Judiciary Committee, under the chairmanship of Senator Joseph Biden of Delaware, delivered a stinging report rejecting the Bork nomination. The full Senate, which was now as a result of the midterm election of 1986 in Democratic hands, voted to reject Bork. And some moderate Democrats joined them in this. So that left Bork out. Reagan had to find somebody else. He goes for another conservative called Douglas Ginsburg. But surprise, surprise, this critic of the 1960s counterculture was found to have sampled its delights in his youth by smoking marijuana. So he was out. And that left the need for a safe pair of hands. And Anthony Kennedy became Reagan's last nominee to the Supreme Court. Now, Kennedy is very important. Because really, he becomes a swing voter. And by the beginning of Barack Obama's presidency, the Supreme Court is so finely balanced between liberals and conservatives that Anthony Kennedy holds the balance of power. The Supreme Court was often dubbed the Kennedy Court. Whichever way Kennedy went, the Supreme Court would go because he was the difference between the four liberals and the four conservatives. So uh, it's a mixed record for Reagan. Uh, far more significant were his uh, lower court uh, federal judgeship nominations. In eight years, he managed to nominate half of the federal judgeships, and that was as significant, if not more significant, a judicial legacy than his Supreme Court one. 
Now, while all this was going on, Ronald Reagan was also dealing with immigration issues in a very moderate, some would say progressive fashion. In 1986, a bipartisan group in Congress managed to get support to enact a immigration reform bill that legalized undocumented aliens already in the country. It went to Reagan's signature and Reagan signed it. But it is true our borders are out of control. It is also true that this has been a situation on our borders back through a number of administrations. And I supported this bill. I believe in the idea of amnesty for those who have put down roots and who have lived here, even though sometime back uh, they may have entered illegally. With regard to the employer sanctions, this we must have that. Not only to ensure that we can identify the illegal aliens, but also while some keep protesting about what it would do to employers, there is another employer that we shouldn't be so concerned about. And these are employers down through the years who have encouraged the illegal entry into this country because they then hire these individuals and hire them at starvation wages and with none of the benefits that we think are normal and natural for workers in our country. And the individuals can't complain because of their illegal status. We don't think that those people should be allowed to continue operating free. Reagan had no beef with Latinos. Wherever they came from, he famously once remarked, Hispanics are naturally Republicans. They just don't know it yet. And in his farewell address of 1989, he famously remarked that uh, the United States was the city on the hill for everyone from other countries who wanted to get there and had the will to get there. Of course, when he said it was a city on the hill with its doors open, he forgot to mention that it wasn't the city on the hill for young African-Americans for whom the doors of the prison were locked. But Ronald Reagan was never one to worry about detail when he had some great lines to deliver. In 1986, Congress, with bipartisan support, enacts what is effectively an amnesty for undocumented workers who are already in the country. And it goes to Reagan's signature, and he willingly approves it, enthusiastically approves it, He has a belief that Hispanics are an important element of the American community. He is, after all, has, after all, been governor of California. And he famously remarked in 1984, Hispanics are naturally Republican. They just don't know it yet. But probably the most culpable thing that Reagan did insofar as African-Americans are concerned is that he stepped up the war on drugs, which Richard Nixon had initiated in the early 1970s. Our government has a firm policy not to capitulate to terrorist demands, that no concessions policy remains in force, in spite of the wildly speculative and false stories about arms for hostages and alleged ransom payments, We did not, repeat, did not 
trade weapons or anything else for hostages. The ballad of the bullet, some freedom or some bullshit. Will we ever do it bigger? Just keep settling for little shit. We brag on having bread, but none of us are bakers. We all talk having greens, but none of us own acres. If none of us own acres and none of us grow wheat, then who will feed our people when our people need to eat? So it seems our people starve from lack of understanding. Cause all we seem to give them is some balling and some dancing. And some talking about our car and imaginary mansions. We should be indicted for bullshit we inciting. Children deaf and pretending it's exciting. We are advertisements for agony and pain. We exploit the youth. We tell them to join the gang. We tell them dope stories, introduce them to the gang. Just like our love of North introduced us to cocaine. In the 80s when them bricks came on military plane. And in stepping up the war on drugs, Reagan criminalizes drug dealing, even low-level drug dealing, and the end result is that a disproportionate incarceration of young black males becomes a feature of 1980s America and continues to be a feature today. The statistics are clear. You have an immensely greater chance of incarceration as a young black male every year from about 1985 to the present than if you are a young white man. What that meant was that African-Americans broadly came to see Reagan as a racist, regardless of his refusal to accept that he was. I don't think he was in the strictest sense. The trouble was that the things he did had disadvantageous consequences for African-Americans. And in that regard, Reagan's time as president coincides with the emergence of rap as a major musical genre. And as rap evolved, Reagan became a hate figure. He became a hate figure as someone who uh, was utterly hypocritical in black eyes, turning a blind eye to white crime and targeting relatively minor black crime and making that a major misdemeanor. And consequently, in 2011, on the centenary of Reagan's birth, when the celebrations were going ahead, a black rapper called Killer Mike released a song called Reagan. And the song ends with this line. I leave you with these four words. I'm glad Reagan dead. I leave you with four words. I'm glad Reagan dead. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 